This episode, we are talking with John P. Eschenbach, a railroad man for almost 40 years. We'll be discussing his rescue from hopelessness and addiction to healing, redemption, and second chances. It's a great story. Stick with us. I'm John Hitchens, and this is Hope and Resilience, a Hiswell Homes podcast on the TQI Network. Each episode, we attempt to tear down the barriers to mental health, create and inspire a movement of change of how we do mental health and be the change agent to how we see, understand, and respond to those who struggle with mental health conditions. Welcome to Hope and Resilience Podcast. I'm John Hitchens, and today we have on John Eschenbach, who's the author of the book Rescue. Welcome, John, and thanks for coming on board. Well, thank you, John, for inviting me to uh, to your podcast. Oh, you're welcome. I don't know if you know this, but we have several things in common. Okay, first of all, obviously our names, John. That's pretty pretty obvious. There's a lot of Johns in that introduction. But you also worked for a transportation industry. I did as well. I was an airline pilot for several years. I had other jobs, but as did you. But we had both spent the majority of our time in the uh, transportation industry. And then there's something else that I noticed in your book that you said is that you retired April 20. I retired May 20. So how's retirement going? Retirement is going great. Uh, I did spend another 10 years as a consultant in the railroad industry, and I finally retired from consulting uh, two years ago. And retirement is excellent. Yeah. some I, I feel like sometimes that I need to retire from retirement, but so that maybe maybe I'm going to have another retirement like you did after ten years or something. You started out like we talked about as a you finished up as a consultant for the railroad, but you started out in the railroad business. So can you talk to me a little about what you like most? You had several jobs. I read you had numerous promotions. You did amazing in the railroad. Which of those jobs, all those different jobs you had, which one would you say you liked the best or enjoyed doing the most? Probably project manager, managing large construction projects. Well, and that's what I found amazing. I, I always think of the the railroad industry of, you know, the guy either collecting the tickets and or driving the train. But that's what I was amazed about your book was that you did lots of construction. I mean, you did bridges and all kind of projects for them. And it sounded like it, all over the country, really. Yeah, that's correct. I started in Baltimore, Maryland as a carpenter's helper in the bridge and building department in 1976 and uh, ended up from Baltimore into Wilmington and Philadelphia. And then finally, uh, the railroad moved me to the West Coast to San Jose and then from San Jose down to San Diego. Yeah, I saw that San Diego. I have a buddy that uh, lives, he lives in two places in the summer. He's in San Diego, but in the winter, he has a, a home in Phoenix. And when it gets hot, he goes to San Diego. And he just recently invited us out there for two weeks. And I'm an ex-military guy. And so is he. So we got to go on some of the beaches that the, the military have out there. And San Diego in itself and the place he lives, I just love that out there. So how long have you got to be in San Diego now in that area? Well, we've been in San Diego since 95. Wow. Uh, the railroad moved us to San Jose in 93. Very, very nice. I, I just love that area. We'll get into your story because to me, like I talked about earlier to you before we got on about hope and resilience, we talk a lot about that. That's the name of the podcast, obviously. And I think your story 
will just give a lot of people hope. And then you could talk about how you've done what you've done in the last numerous years, 30 some years, 40 some years, probably where you've had resilience and endurance in, in what you're trying to do as far as your addiction issues that you had when you were younger. So you worked for Amtrak for 34 years. Uh, then before that though, you had quite a few years of struggle. Can you talk to us about when that started? Like even you talked about 67 in the book, that's when you actually got arrested. But can you tell me what happened uh, a little before 67 to get you into that situation? What was your life like and how did that occur? Yeah, that's a good question. A little before 67 as an adolescent, preteen and then early teen, what I saw was a lot of my friends going off to war to the Vietnam War and a lot of them were not returning home. A lot of them lost their lives. Uh, during the Nixon administration was uh, part of the Vietnam War, and uh, I lost hope. I, I lost hope for for what I thought life was going to be about, and uh, I lost hope in seeing friends, young friends, uh, not coming back from the Vietnam War, and uh, I, I really didn't have a solid father figure. My dad was a, a good working man. Uh, he attempted to be a great father, but he too had a drinking problem. So that had an impact on my life as a young adolescent and a teen. Uh, and without the hope, uh, during the late 60s and early 70s, uh, there was a push for a cultural change. The Beatles and the Rolling Stones uh, with it came the use of marijuana. And the crowd that I chose to associate with were the pot smoking guys that uh, had lost hope as well and found an escape in the use of drugs, pot and LSD. And, and uh, that's when I began to start using drugs at a very early age, at, at 16 years of age. And we see this a lot and we talk about it a lot. And that's why we try to emphasize what hope is, is, is seeing a next step is what we see. It's just that when you're hopeless, you're in a fog. We talk about the fog of war because I was a military guy where, you know, you don't know whether to step left or right or where to go. You just see no way out. You don't see, it's just a very bad feeling. And it sounded like you had that and many other people that we deal with have that, but you obviously somehow eventually found hope in, in your life because now you've went well past 67 since all this occurred. I just want to take a quick break here to let you know that if you're struggling with mental health and need help, or if you have a loved one struggling and you want to join our community, please visit us at hiswillhomes.org. And yes, you can be struggling with mental health or supporting someone that's struggling and be a mental health warrior. Look forward to hearing from you, hiswillhomes.org. Thank you. But the other thing you talked about there was just that the, the culture and the things around you grabbed on things that you thought would help, but didn't actually help you at all. In fact, they caused you a lot of trouble. Yeah, the, the culture and peer pressure was for me to rebel against the normal culture and in that rebellion, of course, I ended up addicted to heroin. And being on heroin for nine years, I attempted to deal with my drug problem through, the, through a uh, program called Methadone. 
And the use of methadone really just delayed the issue concerning my problem with addiction. And methadone really was never the answer for me to be able to get drug free. My early detoxification was when I was uh, sentenced to a mental institution, Spring Grove State Hospital. Yeah, let's talk about that. I read that and that was like uh, thinking about what those institutions were like. Uh, Can you tell our audience that, okay, after you got arrested, you said that they they didn't really know what to do with you. You were young. You were, I think, 17 at the time, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, they actually sent you to, I think it was called Spring Grove, a mental institution. Can you tell us a little bit about what you went through there? Because that was amazing to me. Yeah, so I was really petrified when I when I walked into this large uh, stone emphasis of an institution called Spring Grove. And unfortunately, rather than putting me into a rehab building, it's a 200-acre campus. They had multiple buildings. It's still in existence today. The building that I first was assigned to has now been closed and condemned but it was called the Foster Wade Building. And in the Foster Wade Building is where they house patients that were criminally insane. That meant that uh, patients in that building had had committed multiple dramatic offenses. For instance, that the inmate next to me was Max, and he was in the mental institution because he murdered his entire family. Um, the way they dealt with the withdrawal of my heroin addiction in 67 in Spring Grove was to put me in seclusion and lockup. So they put me in a... Uh, no meds, no nothing. Just, no bed, no clothes. A hole in the middle of the floor is where you uh, wow. take care of business. And uh, they, they locked me in there. as a slam the steel door shut with a little slot in the door where they would slide in a paper plate of food and uh, put paper clothes on me so I couldn't commit suicide. And I paper, went through, wait a minute, did you say paper clothes? Right. So I went through, so I went through withdrawal for 30 days, cold turkey. Uh, there was no medication. There was no methadone or, or anything. And uh, that was my introduction to the mental, to the mental. Yeah, just just hearing that scares me enough that I'm like, oh boy, that probably would have kept me out of it. Just hearing what they did to you there. So something you talked about though is, I mean, you were in there. It was, it sounded like it was a extremely difficult situation. And you were in there for how long? A year or something? Yeah, I was in there. I was in there for a year. And what they did after the thirty days is they moved me to a less secure building called the Dayhoff Building, a little brick building that housed, I don't know, maybe fifty. 50 to 70 patients in the Dayhoff building. And in the Dayhoff building, they would have, they, they put me on Thorazine and Thorazine just turned me into a zombie. Uh, uh, I just, I was, you know, heavily medicated on Thorazine and could hardly communicate uh, when my mom would, would come to visit. And I asked them why all this, heavy medication and why are you keeping me in the mental institution? Do you think I'm nuts or crazy or what's going on? And they, they said, well, anybody that sticks a needle in their arm four or five times a day and is using as much heroin as you're using obviously has some mental issues. Mental health so they, issues. they would send in college students that were interns to interview me 
about my upbringing, my past, and millions of questions that I just got tired of being interviewed by these college interns that were allegedly there to help me. And then there was some group therapy sessions that I attended, and uh, I just couldn't wait to get out. I figured this institution is not going to do anything for me to help me with my drug problem. And uh, when the year, year was up and I got out, I was happy to get back out on the street again. Yeah, it sounded like it didn't uh, in the book that it, it it had an impact, but it didn't help you as far as what you were struggling with. But someone that did, you, you mentioned her a little bit, but your mom, and then you call her, I think you use the name Peggy. It, it's hers, Marie something. I forget what all her, her name is, but you call her Peggy Ann. Peggy. It, it sounded like she was an amazing prayer warrior, not just then, but your, her entire life with you, that she just covered you in prayer and uh, just always there for you. I mean, it sounds like she was like, we talk about a go-to person. Can you talk to us about really Peggy, who seemed to be at that stage of your life, your go-to person and how that helped you having one? I mean, mom loved me with an unconditional love. She would come to Spring Grove and visit me. Uh, Dad said it was just too difficult to see me in an institution like that, that he just couldn't bear the, the pain to see me in Spring Grove. So therefore, he didn't visit at all. But mom had this uh, undying, unfailing love for her, her lost son. I'm the one of four. I have two brothers, one older brother, a younger brother, and then an older sister. And mom, uh, originally a Catholic, but converted to become a, a Lutheran, uh, tried to get us involved in the Lutheran church early, early on in Baltimore City and when we moved to Baltimore County. But mom, mom, after I got out of Spring Grove and I began using again and had a couple more arrests under my belt from the Baltimore County Police, mom prayed and wanted to do an intervention and uh, she reached out to a Christian program called Christians Outreach, which had a little home out in, in uh, I believe it's Baltimore County or Carroll County in uh, Woodbine, Maryland. And she reached out to a man named Charles Schmidt. They had a little office in Baltimore City in this home in the county. And she called Charles Schmidt and she said, hey, look, my son has been released from Spring Grove. He's He's been on and off of heroin and methadone, and uh, I, I'm at loss what to do with him. I understand you have a program for drug addicts and alcoholics. Would you come and pick him up and take him out to your facility? So at the urging of mom and just to appease mom, I said, yeah, I'll check it out and I'll, I'll go with these people and see what this program is about and give it a chance. And uh, up rolled a big white van and our Baltimore County home in Parkville and out bounced Charles Schmidt and he was a tall, lanky, broad-shouldered man with creasy black hair. I could smell the bro cream on his hair and he rapped on the front door and said, praise God, hallelujah, I'm here to pick John up. And uh, I just shook my head and went, you got to be kidding me. She so said, you go out there. Up to the country with a bunch of holy rollers. <laughs> so how'd that go for you out there? It was, an, it was an amazing, uh, you know, and uh, I got into this van and it was like an hour and a half ride out into the country. And we pulled up to a little country house and there were other recovering addicts and alcoholics in the house. And I, I went in and they poured me a big glass of Hawaiian punch 
and put a plate of cookies in front of me and said, hallelujah, praise God. Uh, we hear you're, you're struggling with heroin. We know Jesus can set you free. Glad you're here. We love you and we want to help you. And I went, well, well, that's good. Then give me some medication because pretty soon I'll be going through withdrawal from heroin. And they said, we don't have medication, but we're going to have a church service tonight. And we're going to take you to that service. And we believe God, that Jesus Christ is going to deliver you. And I, I rolled my eyes. I thought, my, my mom is out of her mind. She sent me out here with these holy roller nuts. And I had heard about the Jesus movement that was going on out in California yeah. and the wave of the Holy Spirit. And I thought all this stuff was a big hoax that the Jesus people were plastic people and this God stuff was just not real. But they took me to that country church and I sat down in a wood pew. It was a little old wood clad church, Pentecostal church, I think it was. And I sat down in the pew and I put my legs, my feet up on the pew and grabbed around my knees because I felt some, maybe some diarrhea was coming on. I was beginning to go through some withdrawal from heroin and I, my nose was running and I started to feel some withdrawal pains and they circled around me and laid hands on me, put a hand on top of my head, hands on my shoulder. And I thought, what are these people doing? And they began singing praise and worship songs, which I had no idea what those songs were. They were praying in another language. Later, I learned that they were praying in tongues, tongues. which yeah. they claimed to be the power of the Holy Spirit. And they were praying over me and casting out demons and speaking to the devil and asking the Jesus, that the Lord God, that Jesus Christ would set me free from heroin addiction. And I was a little bit amazed because I knew what cold turkey was like. I went through it in spring. Been through that, yeah. And uh, sure enough, my, my legs went limp and fell to the floor on the church. My feet did and the withdrawal stopped. The runny nose went away and there was no diarrhea and I felt brand new. I was I was made clean. Wow. And I had no idea what was going on. And after a little church service, they took me back to the country house and they said, the power of the Holy Spirit has changed you. You've been made new. You now can be a born-again creature if you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior into your heart. And it says in the Bible, in the parable of the sower of the seed, about the sowing of the seed and seed that was sown in that church was sown on hard ground. My heart was hardened against, against God. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't believe there was a God. I didn't believe in religion. So the seed did not take a take root in my heart. And I said, you know, this, this is great. Now, I, now I can use less heroin to get high because you guys are clean. Because I'm clean, so John, that is amazing. That took me back to the city. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's amazing that you actually totally went through that recovery, and yet it still your heart was in a place that you couldn't accept what they had given you, and you saw it as a way just to get back faster to where you were before. To me, so let's go back a little bit about you talked about a wounding of your heart. Uh, and you talk a lot in there and you have several books you recommend or that you read about John Eldridge. I've read his books and I've also, have you ever heard of uh, 
Uh, Michael Thompson, Heart of the Warrior, he's another guy that's taken a lot of John's stuff and and developed it into the and talks about our wounding and how that affects us and what it does to us in our lives. Can you talk a little bit about John Eldridge, what he's given you as far as the wounding part and, what, and maybe where you've taken that to where eventually you accept this. But at this point in your life, you basically have said, well, that's great, but this is just going to help me do it an easier, faster way. So talk to me about the wounding and how that you think impacted what, what you've been through and what started all this. Yeah, it's real interesting because two years ago when I did retire from consulting and I prayed about writing my memoir and publishing my story, and it, I took a year to do it. And as I began to write it, I began to realize that even 50 years later, there were wounds in my heart that I had not really dealt with as I was writing the manuscript the draft manuscript for the book to be published. So I had to go back 50 years and I had to look at some of those wounds. I had to face the fact that although my father loved me, I was a very wounded young adolescent and young preteen because my father's love for me was not exhibited in such a fashion that, that I could accept God to be my father, because my father's example to me was an unhealthy example of what a true father was. As I was writing my book, and I realized that when dad took a handgun and went after the drug dealer that was dealing me heroin, it dawned on me that my dad did love me. Did love you. you know, yeah. that, this was a prime example of how great a love he had, that he would risk his life and his freedom to take a handgun and knock on a dealer's door and get ready to, sh to actually murder, to kill a drug dealer that was dealing me heroin. And, uh, you know, some 50 years later, as I'm writing this story, I'm beginning to realize there was a father's wound that I never really dealt with. And, and as I began to pen the story of how dad went after that drug deal, I began to realize, you know, he did love me. And as, as I, began my career and I went from carpenter's helper to assistant bridge and building foreman. I sat in the, the living room of his home and said, yeah, thanks dad for encouraging me on my promotion. Now I need to get a watch. He left the living room, went upstairs to his bedroom and came down uh, to the living room and handed me a Timex watch. I put a picture of that Timex watch on my yeah. website on my gallery of photos. So here was another example where dad would, he would give the shirt off of his own back to help others. But uh, he handed me that watch and uh, I oh, kept, kept that watch to this day. It was another example of just of his love for me and he was proud of me of the, 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 the uh, progress I was making in my railroad career and staying drug free. So there were many wounds in my heart that I would have to go back and address and, and deal with. I think and that happens. Yeah. With a lot of people, this, when I, I went to a conference just recently, heart of the warrior and, and Michael Thompson talks about that thing. I think other people that wounding and, and a lot of times they had stories of people there that you don't even realize as an adult, like me with my children, that, that something I said or something else says wounds their heart. And then that comes at a place where, like you said, you had to go back to 50 years to figure out what that was and how to heal that and, and realize that, wow, dad did love me. And that, you know, I'm sure that was a tremendous. And I think a lot of people have trauma in their life 
that a lot of people around them don't realize that it's happened or that it occurs to them, but it is a wounded heart. And that causes a lot of issues of how we deal with things. And then the lies that we talk about in that, you know, when you do get wounded, then you start saying, yeah, I'm not lovable or I don't that. You talked about acceptance as well was another thing is that eventually you start having replacing, you thought you were worried about replacing success with uh, an addiction and where you had to keep be, having success. and. I just want to pause here for a moment to remind you about Hiswell Homes. Hiswell Homes is here to build a community for those struggling with mental health, both online and locally with an actual facility. No one should be homeless because they have a mental illness. Help support us in building a community and building actual homes. Go to hiswellhomes.org and click on the donate button. Join us to help improve lives. Thank you. It, may, it sounds like that the only way you were able to get through that was like the, you just talked about is you need to go back into your life and heal those woundings so that then you can become like the heart of the warrior talks a beloved son is that you can't really love and do the things you want to do until you become loved and heal those wounds so that you can do that. Can you talk to me more about the acceptance and how eventually this love was able to preeminate your heart? And now obviously from reading your stuff, you, you're, you are a beloved son and your love comes out and shows everywhere. So coming out of the drug culture after being a heroin addict for nine years, my vocabulary basically consisted of all four letter words, most of them beginning with the letter F as in Frank. Yeah. And, uh, when I got saved and got involved in a Christian community out in Edgewood, Maryland, there were a group of men that accepted me for who I was, not for who I was going to become, but for where I came from and who I was. And, you know, Eldridge talks about and fathered, uh, fathered by God in, in his book uh, about how men need to be fathered. And certainly uh, my dad was killed in an automobile accident in 1978. Wow. That was just three years after I'd become a Christian, and I became a Christian in 75. I'd begun my railroad career in 76. So in two years, we were buying our first little townhouse in Edgewood, Maryland, when my second daughter, Sarah, was born in 78, when dad was killed in the automobile accident. And so here I was, fatherless, not really having to totally reconcile my relationship with my earthly father and, and involved in a Christian community where there were other men that began to father me. And in these small groups that we would meet in weekly, I found men that took an interest in me that represented Jesus Christ. And they became the hands and the feet of Jesus. And they provided an example for me of what it is like to be fathered. So as men, we need to be fathered. Even, even to this day, now having walked with Christ for 47 years, there are men that I have in my life that are still father figures, that father me, that, that provide godly counsel, that provide wisdom, that pray for me, that pray with me. So the wounding of the heart is a process that gets healed where we recognize that Jesus Christ becomes our Father. Father God is the one, the ultimate one that can guide our lives. And yet he uses other men to help father us to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our lives 
as well. So that's been key to my recovery. Many people ask, well, how did you how did you stay clean from heroin after nine years of heroin for 47 years? And my answer is always the same. Well, it's been one day at a time. However, it's been through Christian discipleship. It hasn't been because I've participated in NA or AA. Celebrate Recovery didn't exist in the, in the early 70s. Yeah. Yet I'm recognizing as I, as I do participate in a recovery meeting because I want to learn about recovery, that there are biblical programs in recovery that mimic the Christian discipleship training that I went through that kept me clean, that have 12 biblical, 12 steps, but with biblical, biblical uh, comparisons to each step, which I put in the back of my book with the 15 discussion questions, that Christian discipleship is really the only program that I see that, that sets drug addicts and alcoholics free from their addictions and allows them to, to enjoy the success of recovery. Yeah. You talk about that in a book. I was reading over those and, you know, AA has great success with that as well, but the 12 steps that you talk about are just slightly different, but everything you talk about there, uh, we try to bring in is that you, this isn't a journey that you usually do on your own. Not only do you, you talk about your mom, you also talk about your brother. And we maybe will get into that later where he talks about a book that he gave you. There are always people, especially these band of brothers throughout your career that supported and helped and, and encouraged. And, and we think that's critical that you get in with a group. You know, it's, it's not a, a lone ranger journey. It's a journey where people are constantly helping you and supporting you as long as, as well as your faith, which was the basis for it. But you always had a band of brothers or people that were supporting you, which I think is amazing. Uh, can you uh, talk more about now your brother, you talk, I believe about a book that he talked to you about, and uh, it ended up having a tremendous impact on you deciding to start a business, I believe. Yeah, and that was called The Mover of Men and Mountains. And right. That was, that was uh, by R.G. Letourneau. And Letourneau was a, he was a high school dropout, R.G., uh, Bob, they called him. And uh, later on, he did go back to school and get some education. But he was a welder, uh, actually started as an auto mechanic, and then uh, ended up being interested in construction and loved to run heavy equipment and backhoes and was a welder. And he had a, he was involved in a Christian Missionary Alliance church. And this was in the uh, late forties, early fifties. And uh, he got on far for God and he wanted to use his skills to help other men learn a craft and a trade. And he opened up an institute after he was somewhat successful in his little welding business. Uh, called Letourneau Institute, where he would train other men how to be welders and how to go into the construction trade and be successful. And uh, it was a Christian ministry, and it ended up becoming R.G. Letourneau Institute, and then finally R.G. Uh, Letourneau University, which is an accredited four-year college that my brother attended. When my brother handed me the book uh, after I'd become a committed Christian, and I was active in the church, I thought, well, maybe God wants me to start a business that would be similar to RG's and I could hire other men and give them a chance at, at a trade and a craft. And I began a business called Indico Corporation and it was very successful. And I was working at part time on the weekends so that I could help contribute 
to the building fund of a church that we were building in Edgewood, Maryland, in Hartford County, Maryland. And uh, one thing led to another and ended up actually generating a million dollars in revenue. And it came to a place where I had to say, okay, what is it you want, God? Do you want me to continue with my railroad career or do you want me to go in business full time? And God spoke clearly that I should just sell the business and focus on my railroad career. And then came the big wreck in 1987 of Chase, Maryland, where a Conrail locomotive engineer was smoking pot and drinking beer and run through a stop signal on a high-speed Amtrak train going 110 miles per hour, broadsided it and uh, killed 16 people. And I worked that wreck around the clock helping to clean it up. And uh, that's where we get the random drugs and alcohol testing rules from the railroad from that from that incident. At that point, I thought maybe I made the wrong decision. Maybe I should be a contractor. But I ended up staying with the railroad. For well, you did amazing work there, too. I mean, you it sounded like you got it all back together. You got people in there and, and, and you talked about the Salvation Army and different people that really helped in that incident. But as you're telling this story, I, I hope people recognize that God obviously had a hand on your life. We've talked about several stories already, but we try to give people hope also by talking about that you're special, that God values you, that he has a plan for you. You're not here for, there's a purpose for you being here. And you obviously, throughout your life, God moved you in ways and directions and jobs and promotions. Can you give us a couple more stories about where you clearly saw God's hand on your life and that he had a purpose for you other than what we just covered? Are there a couple more that come to your mind that you'd like to share with the, the audience about how God said, John, I have you and I have a plan for you. Yeah, that's a good question. So there are many, many short stories that I share in the book. But what what comes to uh, my mind immediately is the move to California. In the railroad business, when you're in a management level position, the only way to be promoted in management is to move physically, to take on more responsibility at a different position in a different geographical location. That's how the railroad trains managers to be managers. Uh, It's a touchy subject because I don't want people to think when you give your life to Christ and when you find hope in Christ and when you're successful in recovery, that you're going to become, you're going to advance from a labor to a project director in your career. That's not always the case. You might be, you might be a carpenter the rest of your life, and that's fine. God will use you as a carpenter. Well, he used another carpenter that I know of, right? Yeah, yes. <laughs> yes. So, so carpenter's not bad. <laughs> so in building these relationships over the years in Christian community with my band of brothers and the men that were fathering and mentoring me, the challenge came to me was, can I make it on my own if I move geographically away from this little Christian community? Will my faith hold up and will it be secure in my relationship with Christ, with God as my father, when I leave these brothers? And the first opportunity came to move to Chicago and that job fell through. And then another opportunity came to take a position in Los Angeles. And I tell the story in the book where we went out and interviewed and it was during the Rodney King riot. 
Um, <laughs> I was the only guy on the freeway that drove down the Union Station in downtown LA to interview. Yeah, nobody's on the road at all. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the Amtrak police had to escort me to the engineering office for my interview. And the division engineer looked at me and said, what are you doing here? Yeah. <laughs> and I said, well, I didn't fly 2,000 miles to let a little riot keep me from having an interview. And he laughed and he said, it's not a little riot. Yeah, the city's on fire. Go back to Pasadena and we'll call you in a couple of days for the interview. Long and story short, the uh, job that was offered for me in Los Angeles, the dollars and the relocation package just was not there. So I turned it down. And within the next year, I got a call from the chief engineer, Vice President Gene Ellis called my boss to say, have John fly to Denver and meet the business car and take a train trip to California. Gene Ellis wants to talk to him about a different position in California. And I looked at my boss and said, I've done this once. What is it they don't get? And they said, well, things have changed. You need to do it and look at the job. And so I flew to Denver and met the uh, chief engineer and his wife and boarded the business car. The business car has a big observation deck on the back with a glass window and swivel seats. And, of course, the next car are sleepers for, for the employees doing the geometry car trip where they measure the track. And it was the longest job interview I ever had in my career from Denver to Oakland, California. And I could sense that Mr. Ellis was a Christian. And he asked me a lot of hard questions, and I explained to him how I was seeking God and trusting God if he wanted to move us to the West Coast, that it would come about. And sure enough, God opened the door for us to move to San Jose. And when we arrived in San Jose, we were we were a one-lit couple. We were a struggling Christian family who thought we did all the things right, like Dr. Dobson said, in raising our teenage girls. And I want to tell you, all hell broke loose with our teenage girls in San Jose. And so there was a test of fair faith. Uh, and there's more detail in the book. But certainly I knew that God had called us to California and that that was a purpose he had for us. And uh, within two years' time, we got another call to move to San Diego. And I was on vacation with my older brother down in Texas fishing on Caddo Lake which is a big lake that spans uh, Louisiana and East Texas. And I got a call from the division engineer that said, uh, Amtrak wants you to consider a job in San Diego. And due to the difficulties in San Jose, my wife and I said, we're done with California. We're going back East. Yeah. And uh, there was a healing that took place in San Jose. There was a four square pastor, Al Soto, that ministered to our family that helped with us correct some of our spiritual ideas about what it was like to be uh, one far cutting edge Christian. And uh, so there was some healing that took place there when we went to Jack Hayford's uh, seminar on uh, the healing streams down in, uh, not 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 Pasadena, but near there. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I put in 12 to 15 transfer applications to go back east, yet God was saying, no. 
I want you to stay in California. I want you in San Diego. And when I got the call down in Texas about San Diego, I scratched my head and went, what? San Diego, that's nowhere near Philadelphia, Baltimore, New York, or Washington, D.C. But I'll take a look at the job and get back to you when I get back from vacation from uh, Texas. And my wife and I prayed about it, and we jumped on an airplane and flew from San Jose to San Diego and started looking at some homes in Oceanside. And there's a lot more to the story about what was required for us to get a contract to operate a commuter railroad called Coaster. But uh, ended up moving to, to San Diego and to Oceanside, and God was still working on us in our spiritual lives about how we were spiritually proud, how we thought we had it all together. We had an older daughter that was a missionary in Mexico City. We had two teenage girls, one that had backslid in San Jose. We had one that was continuing her college education when we moved to Oceanside. And so there was still more healing and more growing spiritually in 95 uh, when we moved to Oceanside. You were hoping to get somewhere. You, you prayed about it. You thought you wanted to get, needed to be back to the East Coast. And that was the answer. But you found out, I think, through much of that, I think you even talk about it, is that, you know, you, you were talking about you lost your band of brothers, a lot of them when you moved out there and different things happened. But the real answer was that he was with you all the time, that God was your answer and God was the thing. And I think that's what he brought you through and showed you. And it's been a tremendous help knowing that when you rely on him, it may not be all fun and games. It's not always, you know, we, we have great success. We have great money. We have all that. There are times where it isn't, and he may keep you exactly where you are. You are lives that you can touch based on your experience. And I think that's phenomenal because of the lives that you touch. You talked about a, a prison ministry that you have been in and done those things, but you've touched a lot of lives because he's touched your lives and filled it with hope and love. Um, a band of brothers, we talked about them, the company also, uh, 75, I think it says April 75, since then, no drugs. Uh, and it's been, I mean, if you think about that, that's, that's what we talk about resilience and, and, and endurance, being able to do that. And you've talked about some of the things, having a group that helps you, a group of people. You said it hasn't been solo. You have a prayer warrior that's covering you. You have all different kinds of things and different churches and programs that you're in throughout there to keep you stable and help you. You talk about your 12 steps which i hope people get your book and read those because they sound phenomenal and what you do what else would you like that we, we've kind of covered your story we've covered a lot in the book there's a lot more in the book and a phenomenal story before i let you go i got a couple of questions this one and then maybe one more but what would you if you want to give someone a piece of advice or something that we haven't talked about what else would you like to say to people while they're on here to hear your story about hope how that helps and resilience, what you've done with those two items probably. But what else would you like to say to someone out there that's listening? So I'd like to say when I received that 47-year chip from being drug-free from heroin, I don't want to mislead people because alcohol is a drug as well. And yeah. there was a place in my life where I had to surrender whether or not I would partake of alcohol and how it could lead me down the wrong path back to an area of addiction. So although I've been 47 years clean from heroin, there was also a struggle later on in my walk with Christ with regard to partaking of alcohol. So I would say if you're recovering from drugs, uh, stay clear of 
of alcohol because alcohol can certainly become an issue in the area of addiction and recovery. I would also say that I continued with my band of brothers. I found other brothers in San Jose. I found more brothers in San Diego and in Oceanside and uh, even in the church that I'm involved with now. And that I would say that when you read my book, please don't have false help, hope. My wife mentions to me numerous times and reminds me that I need to be careful that I'm not leading people into false hope, thinking that when you accept Jesus, every turn, everything turns out perfect. Look at me. I went from carpenter's helper to senior director of the Southwest Division of the Engineering Department in Amtrak. Not every person that is called by God is going to have a success of a calling like I was able to be blessed with in my railroad career. The sovereignty of God will guide an individual. If you're called to be a school teacher, then that's great. Be the best school teacher you can be. If you're called to be a lawyer, then represent Christ in your law firm. If you're called to be a carpenter, then be the best carpenter for Jesus. If you're called to be a painter, a bricklayer, uh, a garbage disposal collector, whatever career God has called you into, use that career to exemplify the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ. One brother told me early on in my walk with Christ, he said, little brother, you need to live your life as if it were an open Bible. And remember, it could be perhaps the only Bible some people will ever read. So my encouragement to those that are listening, that are looking for hope, that, that can find hope in Jesus Christ, is that God is sovereign. He will guide you each step of the way. Trust him. In Proverbs 3, verses 4, 5, and 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding, but acknowledge him in all your ways, and he shall direct your paths. As you acknowledge God, he will direct your paths. He will give you success and show you how he can use you as the hands and the feet of Jesus as others have been used in my life to uh, help me in my journey and recovery from drug abuse. John, that's amazing. I, I love that because it, it, it's exactly right. Is that he, you're, you're basically a Bible to other people. You, they may be the only Bible they ever read or see is your book or you walking around and the people you've touched and other people get to do the same thing. The love and stuff he pours in us, then we can pour into other people. And I, I just love having you on. What you, Your story's phenomenal. And I know you're, you've already touched a lot of lives and your, your short history. You got another few years to go yet, I think, in it. But I just want to thank you for being on. One more question. Uh, have you seen the new Top Gun movie? I have not, but it's on my list to do. As you know, the original Top Gun house is on uh, Pacific Coast Highway here in Oceanside. <laughs> we would, they moved it. They moved it to a yeah, new location. Well, well, my buddy took us by there and it brought back a lot of memories. And then we watched the new movie and there's a couple scenes in there where I, I go, I don't remember that, but uh, I think it's Peggy, your, like your mom's name, uh, 
the girl that he talks about in the first one, they talk about in the second one, and it's a big deal. But so you know in the top guns that everybody has a call sign, right? Now, call signs as a fighter pilot, you usually get them assigned to you. Okay. They usually are something you did stupid or or something about your character that they put on. But today we're gonna let you get a choose. Now I've got a couple examples here that aren't very good, but they're ones you could choose to get you off the hook. But we want to announce to the world today what John's call sign is okay so i've got like conductor they have to be short so they have they can't be very long and they have to be you know recognizable over the radio so i've got conductor switchman loco like in locomotive loco trackman honcho and then even rescue so i've i've named a few mine's like hitch hitch is mine hitch zero one is when they check in hitch check one, two, three, four. So you've had a couple minutes where I've been talking, let you think, let your mind run. So what do you think your call sign should be today? You have one of your own or you want to pick well, one of mine? Well, well, when I when I took on the coaster service, the commuter railroad between Oceanside and San Diego, uh, the railroad was previously known as the San Diego Northern Railroad before North County Transit District purchased it or right after they purchased it from the Atkinson, Topeka and Santa Fe. So San Diego Northern Railroad is SDNR. And the original call sign that I had on the SDNR was 102. So numbers in the engineering department, 101 would have been the head engineering guy above me. So I was next in line. So I was SDNR 102. SDNR 102, huh? <laughs> so that was my call sign on the railroad. As far as rescued goes, in closing, I, I want to just say one more thing about uh, about the book and the story. The book Rescued, A True Story of Redemption, Pardon, and Second Chances, which is found on Amazon under my name or on my website, jbachbook, that's J-B-A-C-H-B-O-O-K.com. There's also a link on my website. The book is a story about my life, but more than anything, I want you to recognize it's a story about God's grace, his love, his sovereignty, and his mercy in, his, in one man's life. It's about Jesus Christ. It's not about John Eschenbach. It's about the power, the love of God, the mercy, the grace, and about what Jesus Christ can do in one man's life. So I take no credit for the memoir, I point to Jesus Christ for for, yeah, the I, and for its purpose. I loved about about. I was going to ask you how who rescued you, and uh, I never got to that question. I forgot about asking that. But basically, he rescued you, and and not like that. You guys uh, had got second chances. You talk about your wife, else. What is it, else? Elise, Elise and her brother, that he got a second chance with you guys and you got a chance to save and talk to him. And it's just been a, a an amazing story of not just you being rescued, but other people along your story that were rescued as well. And, and, That's helped. Right. and it's just amazing. I love it. I hope people get the book and we'll put some information out on the, you know, the, the trailers and stuff about to get your book. But I really appreciate your time. You're phenomenal. I appreciate everything you do. And uh, hopefully we can have you on again some other time to go into more detail. We left a lot out. We got to cover a lot, but we covered quite a bit. But thanks again for being on. Thank you for having me, John. It's been my pleasure. John helps us understand today we can all get to a point of hopelessness, a place where we can't see a next step, with things ever changing. It can be a daily battle. But with Christ, John was able to find hope, resilience, and tenacity to stay sober from heroin 
for 47 years. The abundant life can be yours. Thanks for listening.